Turn with me to First uh, Timothy, First Timothy chapter one. We're going to read the uh, the whole chapter as we continue. This is the second sermon on the book of First Timothy that we're doing this summer. Before we read it, though, I want to set your mind in order by asking a question. Simple question. Are you a sinner? Are you a sinner? Raise your hand if you're a sinner. Are you the chief of sinners? Raise your hand high if you're the chief of sinners. If you're not a, if you're not a sinner, uh, this sermon is not for you because my text says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul adds, I'm the chief. I'm the chief of sinners. The Bible says all have sinned. And so if you raise your hand and you declare that you're a sinner, I'll ask you to raise the other hand. Are you righteous? Not as quick. Are you a sinner? And are you righteous? Amen. If you are here today and you are trusting in the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are a sinner and you are righteous. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Sinner on one hand, and righteous on the other. How can that be? How can that be? That's the gospel. Do you see that? Man, if you, if you understand that, you understand the gospel. But I want you to see something else about this little illustration here. Is I want you to figure out, think in your mind how far apart these two things are. I'm a sinner, and I'm righteous in Christ. How, how far apart are those two things? I want you to flip it and think about it, not horizontally now, but vertically. How far apart is the one who came into this world to save sinners and you and your sin? How far apart? Are those two things, you and Christ? Last Sunday, Dustin paraphrased a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that said, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. How, I'm not asking if you are amazed, I'm asking, how amazed are you at God's grace? And I believe it depends on just how big you see that gap between the Son of God and the chief of sinners. Grace is magnified by an ever-increasing apprehension of that gap. If If you think you're not that bad, if you think you're not that bad a person, or if you think that Jesus is just some dude that died on the cross that you could go to heaven, you're not going to be amazed by this grace. And so I hope you see that gap more today. I hope you see that contrast 
more clearly, that you'd be more amazed by His grace. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lord of grace. This text tells us you are the Lord of grace. You sit and rule on the throne of grace. And so, Lord, I have one petition, one request. Please, please give us grace. Give me grace right now. Give everyone who hears this grace. Saving grace. Sanctifying grace. Repenting grace. Persevering grace. You know exactly. You know exactly. You are the Lord of grace. You know exactly what is needed in every soul here. And I'm asking, Lord, we've been praying all week, Lord, for grace. Pour out your grace, Lord please, for the glory of your name. Amen. First Timothy chapter 1, if you don't mind, I'd like to read the whole passage. I want, to see, I want you to see um, this, this flow, and from last week to, to now. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of our Savior and Christ, our, of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship that is from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which with, with which I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. 
But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so, are you a sinner? Well, you're not alone. This page is full of sinners. Matter of fact, this whole book is full of sinners from, from cover to cover. This book is a not about five steps to a better fill in the blank. This book is about God's righteousness and your sin. And this page is no different. And Paul here on this page, he reveals to us four categories of sinners here. Maybe you fit in one of them, maybe all of them. Maybe previously, maybe now. The first one is false teachers and the hearers of those false teachers as Dustin preached on last week. This is why Timothy's been sent to Ephesus, that he would charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And Dustin pointed out two main things there that was going on. These guys were preaching worthless sermons that did not convict of sin. And they were preaching powerless sermons that did not exalt Jesus Christ. And if you study a little more, you'll see, I think that they were doing this out of gain, a love of money, and to draw away disciples to themselves. But think about it. How wicked is it? How sinful is it to preach peace, peace, when there is no peace? How wicked is it to stand up here in a pulpit and to preach frivolous speculation to those who are perishing? Angels of light, a bunch of Pied Pipers. They call themselves preachers. But I want you to forget that somebody was listening to this. They had an audience, they had a platform. It wasn't just the false teachers that were in sin. And remember, this is the church in Ephesus. This is where Paul stayed the longest for three years. These are the ones who had that letter we call. Ephesians, the one that starts out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. How do you go from that to this nonsense that they're preaching? Like that. It's a warning to us. How awful is it 
to be bored with the glory of Jesus. Are you bored here today? Are you ready for this to be over? How awful is it to be entertained instead of awed? Or have your ear tickled instead of your conscience stirred? Churches are filled of church folks right now this morning that are satisfied with worthless, powerless, Christless preaching. And it's nothing more than conscious, soothing idolatry. Verse 8, he puts a finger right on the problem. They were preaching from the law, but they were not confronting the main problem, which is sin, which is what I'm talking about. This is pages full of sin. He lays down this description of us all from the law. Lawless, disobedient, ungodly, unholy, profane sinners. And then Paul himself, in the middle of this passage, the part that I'm really going to focus on, he calls himself the chief of sinners, the foremost sinner. But I want you to think about who Paul was before Christ. Was there a more religious guy out there? Was there anybody that was more righteous in Jerusalem than this guy? Surely he, he fell in that group uh, w- w- that Jesus called the ones that, that were so righteous. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. That's what Paul called himself. A Pharisee of Pharisees. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, guess what? I'm blameless. I met a dying man this week who said that. Unbelievable. Worst of all, he hated Jesus. A whitewashed tomb. Clean on the outside, rotten on the inside. As we've said a couple times here, nice but not new. Moral but ruined. Good folks, but lost. Lost as lost people. Religious and self-righteous. The ones who hesitate to raise their hand when you ask them, are they a sinner? They say, well, nobody's perfect. That's an understatement. Man, I can't think of a more terrifying moment than that day when that self-righteous person who thinks they're good enough to get to heaven, I can't Imagine that terrifying moment when they stand before God after sitting in church, like right now, sitting in church year after year, hearing the gospel of God's only begotten Son slaughtered on a Roman cross for their sins, all the while thinking, I'm not that bad a person. How much worse a punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled the blood of Christ underfoot the blood of the Son of God and who has outraged the Spirit of grace. That's what the Bible says. But you know, there's a fourth category in this chapter. It's actually part of my text. It's it's at the end, the last paragraph, where Paul picks up, this, this middle section is sort of an interlude, and Paul picks up in the last paragraph this original charge that he's given to Timothy. He encourages them to hold fast to the faith. In the midst of all this sin, hold fast 
to the faith. In chapter 6, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Why do you think he says that? Because it's a fight. Genuine faith is a fight. Man, it's a fight to the death. It is tough. It is filled with grievous trials and temptations and difficulties at every turn. But you know what? As Ryan spoke this morning, as Paul prayed this morning, there's this supernatural perseverance that God promises. He promises that if He begins a good work in you, He will bring it to completion. He promises to be faithful and personally sanctify you Himself. He promises that no one will snatch you out of His hand. That song we sing, He will hold me fast. So true. So true. But how does God do that? How does God keep you? How does He keep you in the faith? One way is with exhortations like this to persevere. He says, hold fast, Timothy. Stand firm in the faith, Christian. Fight the good fight. He exhorts you to do that. He encourages you to do that. I'm encouraging you to hold hold fast as He holds fast to you. Another way He does this is He warns us to persevere. He warns us in chapter 4, we'll see Him warning even Timothy to keep a close watch on yourself in the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. All throughout the Bible, it warns us about sin, about an unbelieving heart, and to hold fast. Hold fast. These warnings of falling away. And then, right here, examples. Actual examples of people walking away from the faith. Look what he says in verse 18. He he urges Timothy to continue fighting the good warfare, to hold fast to faith, a sincere faith, to hold fast to a good conscience. But then he reminds us that some have rejected this. Some have swerved, verse 6, some swerved from this. And he gives us two names. He gives us two real examples. This Hymenius and Alexander. He says, verse 19, by rejecting this, what this? A sincere, steadfast faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. These men, at some point, appeared to be brothers in Christ. Even teachers. Maybe even elders. And now they've been put out of the church. They've been put out of the church. Handed over to Satan. What a terrifying description of church discipline. To be handed over to Satan by the church of Jesus Christ. And in this case, by the Apostle Paul himself. But what is the sin here? It says blasphemy, but there's actually a little more information. If you'll flip a page or two to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. It's 
2 Timothy 2.14 says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius. You see his name there? And Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So what's going on here? So what's going on with Hymenius? And and I'm going to argue that I think Alexander was part of the whole deal as well. What's going on here? Wrong doctrine and ungodliness. Wrong doctrine, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and ungodliness, you see, in verse 18. And what's the connection between those two things? What's the connection between this wrong doctrine and ungodliness? Think about something. Man, if you really love your sin, but have this nagging fear of judgment, how can you suppress that conviction? One way is to invent a theology that says, you know what, resurrection's already happened. No judgment. Judgment's already taken place, and no longer now is it eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, then the judgment, now it's eat, drink, play, it's okay, because judgment's already happened. Take note of this. Man, write this down if you want to. Sound doctrine produces and protects a sound conscience, which leads to godliness. Sound doctrine produces and protects a sound conscience, which leads to godliness, whereas the opposite, wrong doctrine, doctrine you make up or invent or craft for yourself, Wrong doctrine sears the conscience, leads to ungodliness, and damns the soul. This is Paul's warning. This is his charge to Timothy. Man, I've seen it. I've seen it. In our ministry in Kosciuszko and Durant, you've seen it. You've seen it in his church. The swerving, fading apostate. And it doesn't happen overnight. It is a slow fade. You see, the truth of God's Word will rightly stir the conscience. But I'm going to tell you, a heart that loves sin is going to try to do anything to avoid that guilt and shame. You're going to suppress the truth. You're going to begin to change the truth. And without some genuine, active, powerful, persevering grace from God, the unconverted sinner will swerve from the truth and make shipwreck of their faith. So please hear me. Hear me. Listen to me right now. Listen. If you have already started to rationalize or justify your favorite little secret sin, you are in trouble. Man, you are in 
grave danger. When you begin to change theology from what this book says, you are in trouble. I've seen it happen. It breaks my heart. Sin abounds. Sinners abound. See it in this page right here. Sinners abound. But there's something greater here. There is something greater than our abounding sin. Grace. Overflowing grace. And if you are a sinner, this is good news. That in the midst of our abounding sin, there is overflowing grace. Let's, let's focus in on verse 12. Let's, let's focus in on this little paragraph. This is, this is the text uh, that, that I want to show you the most of today. I want you to make sure you see, you know, if you lay out this whole chapter, I want you to see how th- this is kind of set right in the middle of this charge that, that Paul has given to Timothy. He starts out, verse 3, that you may charge certain persons. Verse 5, the, the aim of this charge is love. And then in verse 11, he, he announces the gospel, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And then he erupts. This passage right here, it's, it's this eruption of this uh, thankful, personal gospel testimony, which ends with worship in verse 17 to the king of ages. And then he picks right back up. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. And so why is this here? Why is this stuck right in the middle of this charge to Timothy to correct false doctrine? And I have a little three-word explanation. I think it's provoked gospel gratitude. I think as Paul is actually contemplating this foolish, worthless, powerless, Christless preaching, he's actually provoked into this response. It's almost like as if he was crying out, are you kidding me? Where is Jesus? Remember that from last week? Did you run out of gospel? This whole thing provokes this overflowing gratitude of God's overflowing grace that He's gotten through Christ. Look how he starts. Verse 12, I thank Him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord. And look how he describes this grace in verse 14. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. It overflowed for me. What a, what a beautiful thought. Can you say that? The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. I'm up here. I'm telling you that. Can you say that? Would you describe your relationship with Jesus Christ like that? Overflowing grace. Would you give Him thanks for that? What an interesting word. This little word that he uses here that's translated in the ESV, overflowing grace, this grace overflowed for me. King James says, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. In ASB, more than abundant. Amplified. Flowed out of a superabundance. I hope you're getting 
sort of a sense of this little compound word that sort of literally means super, super abounding. Super, super abounding grace. What we might would say, super duper abounding grace. Notice he's not saying just, just more than enough. He's saying a lot more than a lot more than a lot more grace. This is how Paul, the preacher of grace, the sinner saved by grace, the chief sinner, the chief apostle of grace, describes grace. Now, how does he get to that description? How does he get to that description? First, he talks about the source of grace, Jesus. Then he talks about, um, he, he sort of thinks out loud of what he should get from Jesus because of what he was in order to sort of magnify to show the magnitude of this grace that he's gotten from Jesus. You know when Jonah, you know Jonah in the belly of the whale? The belly of a whale, a fish at the bottom of the ocean, when he was rescued finally, when he was delivered out of that situation, he said salvation is of the Lord. Man, because he knew there was nothing else to attribute his rescue to salvation is of the Lord. And here is what uh, Paul is saying. I thank Him. You see that in verse 12? I thank Him, Christ Jesus our Lord, the Lord of grace. I thank Him. He saved me. He strengthened me. He judged me faithful. He appointed me to His service. He did it. He did it all. It is all of grace so that no one may boast. That's his own words. He knows this. He, Paul experienced this. He is letting you know about this overflowing grace that comes from Jesus Christ. It's all of grace. He says, so that no one may boast, especially me. Especially me. Why me, Lord? You ever said that? Why me? I don't, I don't mean the way the world says it. A lot of people say, why me, Lord? Why me? How can it be? How is it that I've come to know Jesus? How can that be? Of all people, how in the world did I become a follower of Jesus Christ? How in the world am I up here? This is what Paul's saying. How in the world? Why? Why me, Lord? Reminds me of one of the hymns, old hymn that I love by Isaac Watts. How sweet and awful is the place. He says, why was I made to hear your voice? And enter while there's room. When thousands make the wretched choice. And rather starve than come. Why me, Lord? Why me? Look at how he's trying to communicate to you, to us, this shocking reality that he of all people, the chief of sinners, how he of all people has found grace. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. Man, he knows. Man, he knows his heart. 
He knows his life. He knows exactly what should have happened on that road to Damascus. He should have been ripped to shreds. He knows there should be a special place in hell reserved for him. He knows that. For the things he'd done, for the things he'd thought, for the things he'd said, he knew that. But you know what? Despite of that, despite that, as a matter of fact, because of that, as we're about to see, because of that, the Lord saved him. The grace of the Lord overflowed for me, though I was a blasphemer, though I was a persecutor, though I was an insolent opponent, though I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I'm going to tell you, man, he had no idea on that road to Damascus that he was the chief of sinners. He had no idea that he was the chief of sinners. He thought he was okay. He thought he was right. He thought he was righteous. He thought he was doing the right thing, killing these people who professed Jesus as the Messiah until he met the Messiah. I thought I was okay until I met Christ. And that's when grace overflowed. He strengthened me. He judged me faithful. He appointed me to His service. You see what He's, you see what he's saying here in these three little things that He says that Jesus did for Him? He strengthened me. Literally, that word is empowered. He empowered me. He enabled me. Jesus enabled, empowered the Apostle Paul. How did He do that? He opened His eyes and shined light into His heart. This blasphemer totally ignorant of who Jesus was, who called Jesus a blasphemer, who called him a criminal. You know, when Paul describes, by the way, I can always get to 2 Corinthians 4. I can always get there, just so you know. When he describes unbelievers, when Paul describes unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 4, he's really talking about himself. The one blinded, to the, the, the old covenant. He said, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the, the glory of the, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But he says, God said, let there be light, and he shined light, he says, into our hearts. My heart. He shined into my heart. He ripped the veil off of my eyes. And from that moment, on the road to Damascus until his last breath, the same Jesus, gave him power from heaven to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. Power. You know what? He does the same for us. He's done the same for me. He's done the same for many of you. He will do the same for you if you don't know him. He strengthened me. He judged me faithful. He judged me faithful. When you, when you read that, don't read the word judged wrongly. Don't read it as if Jesus is looking down trying to find an apostle and he goes, oh, there, look, right there, the, the apostle Paul. He's faithful. I think I'll pick him. Don't, don't read it that way. Read it more like a judge that's making a ruling or a king that is issuing a decree. He judged me faithful. The judge of all the earth ruled me faithful. The king of glory decreed to be faithful. He didn't believe. He, didn't. he was not faithful before he met Jesus. He says he was a blasphemer. He says he acted ignorantly in unbelief. He was anything but faithful. But you know what he says in verse 14? He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me 
with faith and love. The greatest unbeliever had become the greatest believer. The greatest hater had become the greatest lover of Christ and His church. This is the grace of God. This is what the grace of God does to a man or a woman. This is what it does. Nothing's changed. If you're here right now and you're believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, it's because of this same grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. You know, but he didn't, didn't just rescue Paul from hell. He doesn't just rescue us from the lake of fire. He says he appointed me to his service. He adopts us. He calls us sons. He, we become part of his household. We become part of his kingdom. We become servants of the God Most High. We become ambassadors to King Jesus because we are all gloriously appointed to his service. And I don't know if you realize that, but that is, just, that is unbelievable, radical grace. I mean, it's like a traitor to our country. An enemy of the state all of a sudden now joins the team in the White House. Paul was not a friend of Christ or the church. And now he's a chief apostle, entrusted with the gospel. From the foremost sinner to the foremost missionary to the nations, he became the father of man. Who knows how many? Thousands. You even, to some degree. He, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And he's held up as one of the most Christ-like examples in all of Scripture. Right. Is that not amazing? Can we say that? I mean, think about it. Do you have a before and after? You know, I ain't talking about, I'm not talking about your diet pictures, your weight loss before and after. Like this. Now, granted, it doesn't have to be as stunning, at least externally, as this, but can you say the grace of our Lord Jesus has overflowed from me? Do you have a before and after? Would you cry it from the rooftops? Would you take this message to the nations? It's what Paul did. That's what we're called to do. And it comes out of an overflowing gratitude for this overflowing grace. And it's not that hard. Look, the, the youngest of Christians in this room, the Lord has made it so easy for us. Right here in this test, he, He's made it so easy for us to proclaim this message of overflowing grace from Jesus. It's all condensed. It's condensed right here in nine words. Nine simple words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see how simple that is? Can you explain that to somebody? Now I want you to take note of what he's done here. He has... Hold on. He has... He's condensed. He's condensed just a volume of great theology into this perfect little gospel phrase. And he's confirmed it and now con combined it with his own personal experience of amazing grace. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And he says that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is one of 
uh, what's known as one of Paul's five faithful sayings. We won't go into that, but they're all throughout the pastoral epistles where he says this, this sort of phrase here. And he, what he really means is this is trustworthy. This little phrase is trustworthy. It's true. It's trusty. It's trust and it's worthy. It has value. It has weight. It is true and valuable. I mean, how true is it? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And how valuable is it? Oh my goodness, how valuable is it? True and valuable. Is there anything more worthy of acceptance than that? I ain't too good with English, but... I don't know if any of you, you remember how to diagram sentences. We're not going to diagram sentences. Don't, don't worry. Uh, you know, you got subject, verb, object kind of a thing. Like, like Greg, Greg opened Bible, like subject, verb, object. I don't know if that's right. I hope that's right. Uh, <laughs> that's really all that's going on here. We had Jesus, subject, two verbs, came into the world to save, and then the object. Sinners. Sinners. And so I want, you, I want you to look at those little parts. I want you to look at the, the object, the, the, tar- the target of these verbs. The target is sinners. This, this really, really good news is addressed. It's addressed to only one group of people. Just one group of people. Sinners. Not Jews, not Gentiles, not Americans, not Chinese, not blacks, whites, rich, Poor, not young people, not old people, not good people, not church people. Sinners. That's it. And that's why I started this with, are you a sinner? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus lived His life to save sinners. He gave His life to save sinners. Sinners. He lost his life to save sinners. He came back to life to save sinners. He showed himself alive to hundreds in order to save sinners. He commissioned disciples to go out and save sinners. He ascended to heaven to save sinners. He presented himself in the Holy of Holies to save sinners. And he sits right now at the right hand of the Father on the throne of grace, pouring out the Holy Spirit to save sinners and ever lives to save sinners. He sends preacher after preacher into the world to save sinners. This sermon right now is aimed by Him through me to you, sinners. Some of you in this room don't realize it, but we've been praying for you all week. Christ saves sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save you. Right now. To save you. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. I came to seek and to save the lost. I'm here to tell you that if you're a sinner, if you're lost, Christ is calling you to repentance. He's come now to seek and to save you. And it's time. It's time. It's time to stop living in sin. It's time to come out of these categories and come to Christ. It's, it's time. You've been, you've, been, you've been putting it off a long time. You've been dodging it. You've been suppressing it. But it's time. It's time to stop living in rebellion to God. 
and come to Jesus Christ. It's time to be saved. Right now. Christ Jesus came into this world to save you. Notice there's really there's only one name in this sentence, Jesus. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Nobody else. Not Abraham, Moses, David, Muhammad, Buddha, Krishna, any name you want to come up with. Not the president, not the mama, not daddy. Not the preacher. Nobody else is coming for you. Nobody else is mentioned here. There's no, there's no salvation anywhere else. But this name, Jesus, His very name means salvation. His very title is the Christ, the one who has been anointed from the beginning. This long-promised Savior, Jesus is the Christ, the one that we read about from the front cover to the back cover. This is the one who came into the world to save sinners. And then, So I want you to look at those two verbs. That He came to save. Jesus came to save. Which implies you need rescue. That there's, there's danger. And we, we talk about this all the time. But man, if you are lost and without Christ, you are in danger. You, you have, you're separated from God. You are under His wrath. You are condemned. Every sin you've ever done or thought or yet to do has condemned you. Even Jesus said you're liable to judgment. You're liable to the hell of fire. Anybody whose name's not written in the Lamb's book of life needs rescue. We are all in desperate, desperate need of a Savior. And this says that's what He came to do. He came to save. But the other verb... He came into the world, honestly. I think this is the verb that magnifies this overflowing grace in this sentence more than anything else. And I think it's the most overlooked part of this sentence and of the gospel. That Jesus actually came. That he actually came. He didn't have to come. He doesn't have to save. God is not obligated to save anybody. God is not obliged. We do not deserve mercy. We don't deserve grace. It would be perfectly fair and just and righteous for Him to let us all die in our sin. But that's not what the text says. It says that God took action. The Father sent the Son and the Son came. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that phrase, into the world, man, he just tacks that on to that verb. He came into the world. Do you realize what he's saying? Jesus didn't come from the other side of town to save sinners. He didn't come from the other side of the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. came into the world from where? Another world. I think it was mentioned Last week, talking about the foolishness of this preaching that doesn't exalt Christ, this sharing of your own creative ideas and telling stories and giving peppy life talks when we have words from another world. Guess what? We have a person from another world. Jesus is the Word 
from another world, the Word made flesh, the eternal Son of God, who has come into the world to save sinners. What an amazing cosmic high dive to come all the way down to save his own rebellious creatures. Now, Paul adds, of whom I am chief. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Is he just being self-loathing when he says that? Or is there some sort of rhetoric he's putting out there? Or, or some sort of false humility? I think he's magnifying the grace of God. I think he's really, really trying to get us to be amazed. And I think at the same time he's really trying to compel sinners to come to Christ. This is not just his good idea. This is actually Paul. Paul has recognized something. He has recognized something about his own salvation. He's recognized, he's pointing out that there is a higher purpose in his salvation. Look at verse 16. He says, For I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, that in me, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so, so why, why is he saying that he was saved? You know, I've always thought that the Lord was really wise in calling the Apostle Paul. Because, man, was there a better Old Testament scholar at the time? Man, who was better? Who had the better skill set, the better knowledge than, than Paul to, to be, become this great apostle to the Gentiles and to pen 13 books of the Bible? Who, who better? What a wise choice. Lord, that's not what he's saying here. Jesus didn't need Paul. He didn't need his skill sets. He didn't need my skill sets. He didn't need your skill set. He saved Paul as an example. That's what he said. Instead of for his um, skill sets, the, the Lord patiently forbear with some of the greatest evil in the world committed by Paul himself. And at just the right time, when it pleased God, he saved Paul as an example to prove that nobody, that absolutely nobody is too far gone. He saved this chief of sinners as an example to you to prove that nobody is without hope. That nobody has sinned too much. He, he saved this wicked man to show you, to magnify Jesus' perfect patience with sinners. How, how patient has Jesus been with you? Man, does He not exemplify what was recorded so long ago back there in the book of Exodus about slow to anger? Do you realize how patient Jesus was with this man? Do you realize how patient He is with you as we sin before His face every day? How patient He was. How patient He was with you before He called you. How patient He was with me. Just think about how much you've sinned. Can you ever be forgiven? Can you ever be forgiven? Well, the answer to that is a resounding yes. 
This is exactly why Jesus saved Paul to be an example to you. To be an example to you who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Just, man, just look at the list of Paul's sins. What if you made a list of yours to this point and put them side by side with the Apostle Paul? He's got a, he's got a pile of sins a mile high. Did any of that matter? Did it prevent his salvation? Was he too far gone? No. Jesus saves the worst of sinners. Now, last, I should have realized that this is why. And this is why Paul was so stirred up at this vain preaching. Like you're, you're going to talk about that instead of this? This is why he is so eager for Timothy to set things right. He's so eager for the, for the gospel to be boldly and, and brightly preached. And this is why he erupts in praise. I want you to see this little section we looked at between 12 and 17. It's got these bookends of worship. Verse 11 to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God to this verse 17. That he closes this little personal, thankful testimony of grace. He closes it with to the king of ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Last week, did you think in your mind at all why he would say the gospel of the glory of God? The gospel of the glory of the blessed God? The reason why is because the glory of God has been revealed to man. The glory of this holy, infinite, eternal, invisible God has actually been revealed to man. But you know what? That should not be good news. I don't know if you've ever read Scripture, but whenever God reveals His glory to man, people die. Or they know they should. Because we're sinners. And God cannot look upon sin. But this is why that glory of God being revealed into the world can be good news because this glorious, holy, infinite, immortal, invisible God didn't come in this world to bring wrath upon sinners. He came into the world to save them. This is why it's called the gospel of the glory of God. Because the king of ages has come into the world now and become the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This immortal God has now been manifested in the flesh. Why? In order to bring um, immortality to life, to abolish death and establish life. This invisible God has actually appeared in the world for a glorious, gracious reason to save sinners. What an amazing thought that this God actually walked on earth actually bled on a cross because of your sin. How, please tell me how you can neglect such a great salvation. How? You're blind to it. Don't be blind to it. Love this. If you are 
and unsaved sinner here today, please throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ. You know what you'll find? Overflowing grace. If you are a brother in Christ, if you are a sister in Christ, Look at the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up and look at your sin, how ridiculous and wicked and see just how much the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ has overflowed for you. And be amazed. Please be amazed at that. Because this is why He came into the world. To be glorified in His grace. To Him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, be exalted. Be exalted, Lord, by saving a sinner here today, Lord, please. You're the Lord of grace. Lord Jesus, be exalted here today by uh, turning our eyes from worthless things. Lord, even, even those of us who have come to saving faith, the, the faith you've given us, open our eyes, lift our eyes up higher to see you, to see more of your glory, to be transformed by viewing you rightly. Lord, be glorified in the preaching of your word today. This is, this is what you've purposed, Lord. You, you've ordained this, Lord. You've ordained this means to bring yourself glory and to bring sinners to your kingdom. Lord, I pray you would do that. I pray you would cause us all to marvel and be amazed at your grace. Lord, help us. We need you. We need your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.